I carry a pile of books around with me, not unlike Schroeder and his blanket for uh, assurance and serenity. And the ones texts I have on the chair here are fourth edition of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 and 12, the 164 A-N-D-M-O-R-E, 164 and more, print version of the concordance for the first 164 pages and all of the 12 and 12. It's an online resource as well. If you want to impress your friends by knowing how many times the word recovered appears in the big book, um, you can count them on a page or two. Uh, they're an alphabetized of the significant words, the pages, and the sentences that they appear in. It's great for study. Um, if you're uh, trying out to someday be a big book scholar, as I am trying out to be a big book scholar someday. Um, and then three books that were recommended reading by early AAs before the big book came out, as reported by Nell Wing in Mel B's uh, excellent history of the spiritual roots of Alcoholics Anonymous, New Wine. It's a great bibliography. And those three books were by three British New Thought authors, the oldest being James Allen and his simple meditative text, As a Man Thinketh, Thomas Troward's rather dense but fascinating upon multiple readings, Edinburgh Lectures on Mental Science, and Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount. The New Thought Movement started in the mid-1800s, kind of when the pendulum was swinging back from Calvinism and Puritanism, and through the transcendentalist poets, uh, New England clockmaker Phineas Parker's Quimby um, discovered after going to a Mesmer uh, seminar that he, Anton Mesmer, that he could do healing even without the magnets. He healed Mary Baker Eddy, whose name was not that at the time, and she took his basic spiritual theological paradigm and created Christian science. And the New Thought Movement uh, continues today, uh, Unity School of Christianity, uh, International New Thought Alliance. It's a really fascinating uh, metaphysical approach to religion. And give me that old metaphysical religion any day. Um, but for me, these books, I have, a, I have a very small copy of the Zohar, which is one of the texts of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. And it says, you don't have to read this book, and it's in Hebrew or Aramaic, so I can't read it anyway. But it says all you have to do is have it near you. And so, okay, now I'm ready. The topic of this morning's presentation um, is step 12. And my belief, current belief, these things change all the time. Uh, I get an opportunity to, to teach many times a week in many different venues. Um, if I weren't a student of this stuff, you know, I'd, I'd be bored to tears and 
retired already, I'm sure. Um, but for me, this is like the, the best win-win that I get to be a student of this stuff that enhances my personal knowledge of principles and, and thus practices. Um, plus it feeds my teaching. And on that side of the equation, you know, it's, it's a great job. It's a win-win for me. Um, for me, step 12 is a condition, a state of being that I'm delivered to that really bookends step one, which was this condition or state of being that I came in with. I came in in the state of having a body that couldn't tolerate alcohol, a mind that couldn't leave alcohol alone, and an over-reliance on self pattern starting early in my life that blocked me from doing anything about it on my own. And that's a pretty good definition of a chronic progressive and terminal disease. I have a body that can't tolerate alcohol, coupled with a mind that can't leave alcohol alone. And when I'm not drinking, I can't stay stopped because the way I live when I wake up every morning is wrought with an over-reliance on self that I'm not even aware of that blocks me from having the only solution. And Carl Jung is credited with giving Alcoholics Anonymous a bit of human history. He'd never seen an alcoholic recover in his practice. An alcoholic, you know, like Roland Hazard, in whom the illness of the mind existed to the extent that it did in Roland. So he declared Roland hopeless, no help. I've never seen an alcoholic of your variety ever get well. And then Roland really pleaded because he'd gotten, Roland had gotten drunk right after he left Kusnak after, I don't know, quite a long stay under Dr. Jung's care. And then Jung goes into a really fascinating um, bit of the big book on page 27 when he says, well, there are exceptions. Through the ages, so Jung had to go to his knowledge of human history to find any examples of a solution to alcoholism. He said, through the ages, alcoholics have had, since early times, alcoholics here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Since early times, like here and there once in a while. So when people say, well, maybe I'll have a spontaneous remission. Yeah, in, in the millennia of human recorded history, it's only been here and there once in a while that people have had these spontaneous uh, transformations. And the idea that the, the summary of step 12 says having had a spiritual awakening as a result of this step, for me, bears an important approach to really what, is, what does that mean, a vital spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening. Well, on page 27, Jung says, he actually uses the same word that, that Silkworth used for craving, the phenomenon of craving. Today, that's the science of craving. They just didn't have the science back then. So it was only the appearance of craving that Silkworth was able to describe, but he knew it was there. Jung used this, used the same term. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. And I draw from 
a thin knowledge of a whole lot of stuff that Immanuel Kant distinguished phenomenon with the word noumenon. And phenomenon is the appearance of something. Noumenon is the thing itself. And Kant's point is we'll never know the noumenon because we can only experience it through our senses, phenomenon. And I think that's a pretty good starting point in attempting to understand what spirituality is. We can never really know it. We can experience it. On page 17 in the big book, it says we are average Americans, and if the book were to be rewritten, to be more accurate, updated, it would say we're average citizens of the world. And it describes all of the things that are different among us, geographic, political, religious, socioeconomic backgrounds. We are people who would not normally mix. Yet, or but, I don't know, one of those reversing words, there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. So we get spiritual experience with the fellowship. My cue, my red flag for spiritual experiences is when when people say, well, I can't say that much about it. Mary Margaret said that this morning. I don't know what happened, but I know what happened. She experienced it. And so for me, this is a much more functional understanding of spirituality in the sense that the closest I'll ever have to an understanding is really paradoxical. It is ineffable. It is indescribable. It is people are speechless. And for me, that's a much more workable approach than the God of my understanding. And my personal opinion is, if I can understand God, then it ain't God. It's certainly my personal understanding. But again, I think when I read the God of our understanding in the big book, I translate it for its maximal meaning for me presently as the God of my experience. And I experience God and spirituality through others, through people, places, and things. So, there's some language that supports this idea of the indescribability, but in, in the 12 and 12 on page 107 in the essay on step 12, it says, uh, we've been delivered to a new state of consciousness and being. And there's no asterisk with more detail. There's no footnote on that. A new state of consciousness and being. And then an even more mystical, perhaps, phrase is on page 55 in the big book at the end of the paragraph that talks about we found the great reality deep within us in the last analysis. It is only there that it may be found. And these spiritual references in the big book are usually capitalized. So great reality is capitalized. You know, along with Road of Happy Destiny, Broad Highway, and 
creator of the heavens and czar of the universe. So a um, lot of different ways to talk about this. But at the end of that paragraph, on page 55, it says, the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Hmm. The consciousness <clears throat> of your belief is sure to come to you. And since step 12, the summary says having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we can put a lot of different words there, having had a spiritual experience, having had an increased God consciousness. So many different phrases refer to this ineffable, unknowable, but experienceable phenomenon. And it's my first time I have to admit my attention deficit disorder. There's a mouse behind me, right? Okay. You're doing fine. Um, so for me, a new state of conscious, your, the consciousness of your belief is step 12. The consciousness is step 12. My belief is step two. So now when I read that, I get to say, the consciousness, step 12, of my belief, step two, is sure to come to me if I follow the directions for steps three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. So two is foreshadowing this experience. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven bring it about. And perhaps one of the most clear descriptions of the various ways that we can refer to a spiritual experience is in the second appendix, which was added upon the second printing of the first edition of the big book, because it says our first printing left the impression that this was going to be a sudden upheaval. And and Bill wrote that to, to note that for everybody, it isn't sudden. He references then William James's educational variety of spiritual awakening that happens step by step, slowly over time. I've had a few peak spiritual experiences, one of the more powerful being in the emergency room the morning after I tried to kill myself when the ER doc asked me an open-ended assumptive question designed by Alfred C. Kinsey to get information about sex lives from men in the 60s, a reticent group. <laughs> it's called an open-ended assumptive question. It's not a yes or no. If you want a, a lot of medical questions, yes or no, yes or no, let's get through this. But the open-ended assumptive question can't be answered with a simple yes or no, and it has a strong assumption in it. I learned it in the 55-week counselor training program that I went through at Hazelden in 1977 and 78. And we would ask an open-ended assumptive question in our alcohol assessment interview, when was your first drink of alcohol? And it's not a shocking open-ended assumptive question for people who were there for treatment for alcoholism. But the real power of the question was in the follow-up question. After they gave their answer, we would then say, when did you have alcohol before that? Now, if you're interested in solid, accurate information and you have the time, you can do this without offending them because it'll give them pause to think, well, oh, that's right, there's a picture of me when I was eight passed out because I drank all the drinks at a picnic. And that's the goal, accurate information. Well, he didn't ask me, was last night a suicide attempt? Because I certainly was pre-programmed to say, Oh, no, no, I just needed to sedate myself to get a good night's sleep because my girlfriend was giving me my, was not giving me my proper respect. 
could I get some more Valium? I ate it all. He said, when have you tried to kill yourself before? And because of a number of golden threads in my life of the importance of my long association with doctors, first eye surgery, 18 months, second eye surgery, 24 months, 1952, four years old, had polio in Wenatchee, Washington, in that polio epidemic. Allergies so bad at third grade, had my first scratch tests and went into anaphylactic shock because they just didn't understand what a sensitive young boy I was. So I always listen carefully to doctors and appreciate their intelligence and knowledge and kind of, you know, how do they do that? How do they learn all that? So I was listening carefully. And when I pondered that question, the answer to me was, well, I guess that's the first time. And in that moment, I faced the dimension of the misery in my life that even a lifelong practice, 26 years of practice of conflict avoidance, I finally faced the dimension of misery in my life. You know, I was far beyond G mind to grant the wind stop blowing in terms of wishful thinking. And this was a profound moment because the shift was I went from asking for help in a crisis but never following through to asking for help and following those directions. And I've been following directions ever since. And I have to say it's a much better life, a much better life. So... On page 567, I want to cut to the chase on the bottom. It talks about God consciousness. Uh, it talks about probably one of the best definitions, and it isn't unlike what Jung called, said on page 27, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. There's some, there's some detail in that, and each of us has that personal experience of what that personality change was. But that's how this thing manifests itself in the world as a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. And then I think I'm so glad that second appendix got written. The last sentence on that page says, with few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource with which they currently identify their own conception of a power greater than themselves. So for me, what's very clear in these wisdom texts is that I will have a conception of a higher power once I've had a vital spiritual experience. Once I have tapped this unsuspected, and there's the surprise element. Who knew? Didn't know when. You know, it wasn't on my calendar that morning to have a vital spiritual experience. They have tapped through the steps an unsuspected inner resource, the core theology of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 55 in the big book, is that in the last analysis, it is only deep within ourselves that this sorts of spiritual power experience may be found. We initially find it in the fellowship, and that a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding which is indescribably wonder, wonderful is my initial spiritual experience in the fellowship. Here's this group who wants me there, who wants me to call them. It was a long time since anybody wanted me to call them. 
And I went to my first meeting and they loved me up. And that's the essence of what I want to talk about this morning in terms of what the information in the wisdom texts talk about. I consider AA's 12 steps that have now defined, I know that the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous World Services has entertained 551 separate applications for the use of the 12 steps. And I'm sure there are over 100 active 12-step fellowships clustered around different common sufferings, but all essentially needing to address the same thing because we all find out that our eating was a symptom, our gambling was a symptom, our sex addiction was a symptom, our alcohol, our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. Page 107 in the 12 and 12 says, This new state of consciousness and being is a free gift which we in no small part prepare ourselves to receive. And AA's ways of preparing our, AA's way of preparing us to receive this free gift is the practice of the 12 steps. So on page 89, the beginning of chapter 7, a chapter dedicated entirely to step 12, because right there it says our 12th suggestion and it's italicized. So I know where the steps are in the big book because they're italicized. Step three, page 60. Step four, page 64. Step five, page 72. 76, page 76 has six, seven, eight, and nine on it. 84, step 10, bottom of 85, step 11, and page 89, step 12. And it says practical experience shows. And again, this is what this book is. It's the practical experience of the first 100. That phrase occurs in a variety of different ways of this is what we did. And when the book was edited in the final, from the final, from the original manuscript to the final printing, the preponderance of changes were from the prescriptive, you must, to the descriptive, here's what we did. Because they realized that wasn't going to probably work. Now back in, now, now back in, in chapter seven, it gets back to that prescriptive description. But it says practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Now immunity from drinking, back on page 85, was defined as a daily reprieve. We're not cured of alcoholism or drug addiction. What we really have is a daily reprieve. And obviously it's a reprieve from the illness of the mind. Because if I'd never had that peculiar mental twist, strange mental blank spot, thinking, gee, I think I'll celebrate how great my life's gotten over the last three months not drinking by having a couple of beers with friends, unable to see the irony or the lie in that, uh, then I'm not going to use again. So this daily reprieve then is defined as a fit spiritual condition. So that first sentence on page 89 to me says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure a fit spiritual condition as intensive work with other alcoholics. And then it goes on to describe this intensive work. 
And I always threaten to rewrite the big book. I'm rewriting just in my own big book. I'm not rewriting the big book, but I'm changing some things. In my wife's big book, it says on chapter 5, how God works. I really like that. But what chapter 7 really is about is how to be with others. Because it really doesn't tell me what to do. It tells me a bunch of things not to do. And it tells me a bunch of ways to be. So there's the don'ts and the doobies. I'm sorry, do be. You just heard the potheads chuckle. One of the first things it says is don't evangelize, don't reform. Then it says be cooperative. Then it says don't criticize. Just on page 89, three don'ts and a doobie. Do not evangelize, do not reform. A lot of prejudice exists and you will be hindered if you arouse it. Be helpful. Be cooperative as your only aim. It goes, it goes on and I'll reference the text to quickly go through some of these don'ts and doobies. Page 90, be patient, realizing that they're very sick. Get to know them so you can approach them the same way that you would like to be approached. If they don't want to see you, do not force yourself upon them. Don't engage their resistance. Joe, Joe McQuaney, one of the important Mentors from afar in my life used to say, don't engage the alcoholic's resistance. If you do, you'll soon find that they're better resistors than you are an engager. (laughs) Do not moralize or lecture. Do not brand them as an alcoholic. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness of fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany this fatal malady. And back on page 18, in the original manuscript, it said, armed with certain medical information. And someone circled that and drew a line to the top of the page and says, doctors are a jealous lot. I have to ask what medical information? because they were being very cautious not to offend any professional group, clergy, psychologists, psychiatrists. And so somebody said, well, you're you're telling them to practice medicine. So Hank Parkhurst writes in the vertical margin, why don't we just say armed with certain facts about themselves? But now we're told what those certain facts are. What Dr. Silkworth told Bill Wilson in the summer of 1933, that aside from being selfish and foolish, Bill's presenting symptoms. See, Dr. Silkworth didn't engage Bill's ignorance. Page 7 in Bill's story, it says, best of all, recounting his first visit to Towns Hospital, best of all, I met a kind doctor 
who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. And so he engaged Bill's presenting symptoms. He, he did that motivational, motivational interviewing. He started where Bill was and affirmed that Bill felt selfish and foolish. But if Dr. Silkworth had been any kind of pre-Alanon, he would have said, they're there now, Bill. Can you afford to talk about yourself that way? This is a disease. And my belief is that Bill's experience would have been, my God, I can't even get what's wrong with me right. But the impact on that that information had on Bill, seriously ill bodily and mentally, was repeated by the first 100 in the forward to the first edition. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And this 12-step playbook coaches me to use simple examples of using more than I plan on using and using again in spite of saying I never would because every alcoholic is going to be able to relate to that. These are the two universal symptoms of active alcoholism, a body that can't tolerate alcohol and a mind that can't leave alcohol alone. Do not bring up the spiritual solution until they ask you how you got well. And then I tell my sponsees, if they never ask you how you got well, that's an important thing for you to ponder. Use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. I was talking about this with Mark A. earlier. Use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. And I think we had the list from last night, the emotions that emotions of joy and happiness. Those are the terms that describe peace of mind, fulfillment. Be sane, be quiet, be full of human understanding. This is a playbook for maximizing attraction. The do-nots are minimizing promotion. And the do-bees are maximizing attraction. When I first read this chapter, I thought, well, this is, this is a, you know, this is a membership campaign drive playbook. And it really is. And I was wondering, but where's the part about practicing these principles in all our affairs? Well, we'll get to that. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, do you get this drift? Be helpful. Be cooperative. Don't engage their resistance. Don't reform. Don't evangelize. Don't lecture. Be sane. Be quiet. Be full of human understanding. You'll be more successful with alcoholics if you do not exhibit any passion for crusade or reform. Do not talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. If they think they can do the job in some other way or prefer some other spiritual approach, encourage them to follow their conscience. Well, gee, Fred, thanks for all that good information. But I think I'd rather go to moderation management, you know, because they get to drink a little each week. Well, I would have to restrain a part of myself that would be offended 
because I had some agenda somewhere that my information was going to change this person's life, right? But I have to restrain myself, and I have to say, you know, it's good that you're willing to try that. And one of the most important reasons for these do-bees and these don'ts is that if you do the don'ts, you'll probably ruin that person's opinion or create an opinion with that person about what 12-step is. They'll generalize it. Oh, I don't want to. They just preach and they get angry when you don't do them what you want to do. And this way, you don't ruin it for the next opportunity because in all likelihood, moderation management isn't going to work for a real alcoholic. It works for moderate and hard drinkers. I mean, there's no debate. Moderation management works for people who can quit or modify on a non-spiritual basis when something becomes operative in their lives, but not with a real alcoholic. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. Now, Ebby Thatcher did a perfect 12-step call with Bill Wilson on a bleak November night after Bill's Armistice Day relapse. And I'll quickly go through the characteristics that Ebby manifested because he had had a vital spiritual experience in the Oxford groups. The message that Roland Hazard, Jung's patient, had carried to him because Roland went out and had a vital spiritual experience in the Oxford groups. And thus we have Silkworth's truth about the problem, Jung's truth about the solution, and the five tenets of the Oxford groups, the core transforming practice of the 12 steps initially from a first century Christian fellowship. And in that description, bottom of eight and nine and ten in the Bill's story, it says, the cheery voice of an old school friend. Cheery voice. He asked if he might come over. Asked permission, made the approach. He was sober. Bill's already starting to get very curious. And the key is you never bring up the spiritual solution until they ask you how you got well. And their curiosity will be triggered by the accuracy with which you qualify in your simple stories of active addiction. And then the quality of your presence that doesn't have any reference. It's just the quality of your presence. And another line in the book that started it all, that hand-edited version of the big book that Hazelin published a few years back, it's really a fascinating volume. It says, a neurologist says, curiosity is the only element necessary for recovery. How did you get well? Bill's curiosity is peaking. I was amazed. He stood there when Bill opened the door, fresh-skinned and glowing. He didn't stand there, Bill, don't I look great? Man, I've been sober for two months. Look at me. He stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. And then Bill breaks the ice. Come, what's this all about, I queried. And Abby said, I've got religion. Thus triggering Bill's religious prejudice. So we suffer a paragraph of Bill's, ah, that was, yeah, he had that starry-eyed look, you know. This is great metaphysics. It's the same Abby, the same moment, but Bill's 
processing of the same stimuli now is, oh, yeah, he had that, well, Dick said it, that shit-eating grin, (laughs) that Cheshire cat look. Well, never mind, my liquor will outlast his ranting. And then I think the next line is Bill's transforming moment. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he explained his story. So page 18 in the big book contains the only paragraph that is fully italicized and starts with a warning word. After a paragraph of who can't help the alcoholic, friends, family, partners, psychiatrists, and doctors generally find us unapproachable. But the ex-problem drinker who is armed with certain facts about themselves, who has found this solution, the spiritual solution, can generally win the entire confidence of an alcoholic within a few hours. Until that happens, little or nothing can be accomplished. This is the weight of the responsibility that we have given the gift of our vital spiritual experiences. Emmett Fox in the Sermon on the Mount defines human wisdom as a balance of the two primary characteristics of spirituality manifest in the earth, a balance of love and knowledge. Wisdom is a balance of love and knowledge in his wonderful treatise on metaphysical Christianity because all loving and all knowing are primary characteristics of this ineffable element at the core of each of our lives. And he says, knowledge without love is kind of devilish and mischievous. Love without knowledge spoils the child, codependency. Tough love is love informed. And the tenth step on page 84 says, we have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And I'm always, it's easy for me to grow in understanding. But I kept running into, how can I... How can I consciously grow in effectiveness? Because if I think I'm being effective, then I'm not really manifesting the purity of presence. There's ego in that. And so Fox's explanation finally made it clear to me that growing in understanding and effectiveness was growing in knowledge and love. And the knowledge that we get from these wisdom texts is what not to do. understanding what not to do. The effectiveness is the degree that we can shine the purity of our individual transformations, our individual quality of presence. And boy, does that make 12-step work easy for me. I know that my responsibility isn't when I'm there. My responsibility is who I am 
before I get there. And I hope this information, which, by the way, Gandhi talked about, be the change you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in your home group. Be the change you want to see in your sponsee. Be the change you want to see in your sponsor. Be the change you want to see in your partner. Uh, this is that paradoxical element of this unknowable, but absolutely life-saving resource that just like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, she doesn't get the truth about that she could have always gone home until the, the scarecrow challenges Glenda and says, well, why didn't you tell her that before? And Glenda says with this happy, happy talk, because she wouldn't have believed me until she was hopeless. So I don't welcome pain in my life, but I know that it is the next opportunity for me to grow. And thank you so much for your attention this morning. How's that for a 15-minute share? <laughs>